Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, That was uh, God's infallible word, brothers and sisters in Christ. This passage that we've just read, verses 35 through 40, I submit to you is the key to understanding the whole of John chapter 6. Uh, This passage, verses 35 through 40, as I said, is the key to understand the entire chapter. There have been many opinions as to what verses 41 through 59 mean, especially having in view the significance of the Lord's Supper, and of course we're going to pick up on that in the future. But I want to impress upon you that if we don't understand these verses, if we don't understand verses 35 through 40, we will not understand Uh, virtually the entire chapter, uh, certainly not whatever follows verse 40. The last time we looked at this passage, we became more and more uh, clear about the disposition of the crowd, uh, that they had a very similar disposition here to the crowd that was present in chapter 2, where uh, where they uh, looked at Jesus after he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. A uh, very similar misunderstanding, or again in chapter 5, uh, they have a very much so a surface level understanding of what Jesus was saying. Also, uh, tangentially, in chapter 4, very similar to the Samaritan woman at the well just before she caught on to what Jesus was saying about himself. But she was able to graduate from her surface level understanding to now understanding Jesus the way that Jesus understands himself. The problem was that the crowd never graduated. Uh, The crowd never uh, understood the things like she did. They thought all along merely and purely physical lines, as though Jesus were only referencing the miracle of the multiplying of the loaves and the fish on the day before. We looked last time that Jesus was able to discern their unbelief, Uh, Verse 26, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Uh, He also discerns their disbelief in verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And lastly, he discerns their unbelief. Verse 32, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He discerns their their unbelief. And the last thing that uh, we heard them say was up in verse 34, where he says, Sir, give us this bread always. But here, they're still in what I like to call physical town. They're still in physical town or physicalville or something like that. They, They haven't graduated into what he's really talking about. They think that he's gearing up Uh, for giving them more bread, 
Kind of like the, un, the, the never-ending loaf of bread. Almost like the never-ending gobstopper from that one movie. The never-ending loaf of, of bread. But instead, what Jesus is, is saying to them uh, it has something to do with the purpose for which he came and what he's doing as he's holding out to them what he actually offers. Not just the bread that they ate the day before, Uh, But what he's doing and saying is that the bread represents himself. And there's particular, peculiar promises that belong to the people of God. That is, there's promises that belong to those who take of that bread the way that it was supposed to be taken. And he's spelling this out for them in ways that we can see with eyes of faith. And so our theme statement that is given in your bulletin is a continuation of what we've seen thus far in verses 22 through 34. Jesus sustains us in how we need to be sustained, not merely in just how we want to be sustained. He sustained us and he sustains us in how we need to be sustained, not merely in how we want to be sustained. And then those three promises that are given to us, that are held out to the true believer who comes to Christ by faith, number one, that the believer is never empty. The believer is never empty. That the believer is never cast out, number two. He's never cast out. Number three, the believer will be raised up. The believer will be raised up. So following your uh, outline given to you in your bulletin, we'll be looking at verse 35, where we look at the believer is never empty. Verse 35, where Jesus says these famous words, I am the bread of life. Now, famously, this is the first of seven what are called I am statements in the Gospel of John. And just in case we're not familiar with uh, this, I'll say that every time Jesus uses these I am statements, every time Jesus uh, prefaces, pre- prefaces something with the phrase I am, you know, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection and the life, I, I am all of these, uh, these things, I am the door, I am the gate for the sheep, I am the good shepherd. Every single time he's making these I am statements, he's directly making claims of equality with his father. Uh, If you remember, this is the name of God that's given to Moses at the burning bush. Exodus 3 verse 14, God says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Again, very similar phrases, very similar themes that are going on in the Gospel of John. Uh, If you ever want to do a Bible study, look at the amount of times in the Gospel of John where the theme of sending and receiving is found. So you see very similar in in the book of Exodus, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And here the Lord Jesus said to the crowd, I am the bread of life, firstly making claims to his equality with the Father, which of course we've already seen in no uncertain terms over and over and over again in just the chapter before. In chapter 5, it's all over the place. His entire monologue is all about his claims of authority, of his claims not only of authority, but of equality with the Father. It's given in no uncertain terms right there. But he's also using this phrase to address the statement of the crowd. Remember, the last thing that we heard was, give us this bread always, meaning that they just simply want more of that bread that he made supernaturally. Jesus is essentially saying, no, guys, you're, you're, you... You're thinking wrong-headedly. You're asking for something that you already have. You have this bread in front of you right here. I am the bread of life. That sign yesterday pointed to me this entire time. In other words, 
If the sign points to a greater reality than what it is in itself, then that greater reality is directly in front of them, Jesus the God-man. And how is it that Jesus is, is a greater reality than that miracle? How is it that Jesus is a greater reality than the bread on the day before? Well, say it this way, the bread that they received the day before can only fill them up for one day. The bread that they received can only fill them up for one day. And what does Jesus say here, the rest of the passage? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What Jesus is doing is he's pointing to the miracle uh, as it points to himself. And he says here that, that he not only shows that he is the metaphorical bread, like the stuff that they ate yesterday, not only is the, he, he is the metaphorical bread, he also transcends that bread that they ate yesterday beyond all possibility of its range of, uh, of sustaining a person even for that one day, even the bread that he himself multiplied by his own power. I say this because bread doesn't quench thirst. Bread does not quench thirst, but Jesus adds this ability to himself to show that what is ours in him is much greater than what any miracle could ever envision, even a miracle that he himself does. Yes, Jesus himself transcends his own miracles. Uh, as a mind-boggling statement, you could write that, uh, that down, even the ones done by him. This is the ultimate challenge to our world, even nowadays. Do you want Jesus or his benefits? Uh, do you want God or the stuff that you can get from God? Uh, and the answer to that very question, whatever your answer to that question is, uh, that is God to you. Do you want God or do you want his stuff? Do you want Jesus or do you want merely what Jesus can do for you? And so he looks to the crowd essentially and he says, what y'all want is something that's merely physical. Y'all never see beyond that. Y'all never go beyond that. And if they would only have eyes of faith, they'd be able to see the unending fullness of what belongs to those who come to him. And so this makes coming to him and believing in him the same thing. And yes, the crowd certainly came to him. They came across Galilee, as you know. But because they don't come to him in faith, they're reckoned to never have come to him at all. In the sense, no one comes to Jesus who doesn't come to him by faith. In other words, there is no coming to Jesus without coming to him in true saving faith. And so this is exactly what he says in verse 36. <clears throat> but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, to the believer belongs everything that Christ has ever worked for. To the believer belongs everything that Christ has ever worked for. All of the fullness of his work soothes everyone who comes to God through him. They're never left hungry, thirsty. The believer has the promise of never being empty because Christ is to us the bread of life. And yes, the effects of sin can certainly bear down upon you, but heaven will always know you as the one who is full. Why? Because you are filled in Christ. That's why. Down to your very last day. So the believer is never empty. Secondly, the believer is never cast out. The believer is never cast out. Verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Uh, Here we have a succinct rendition of the doctrine of election given from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself, that God the Father has chosen a people from all the world to be given to his Son. Uh, Which is to say that to God, God makes a distinction between the world and his own people. And that his own people have been in his mind from all eternity. He's elected them. Uh, He will ensure that they at some point in their life will come to him Why? Because he's chosen them to do so. We've already read this in John chapter 1, verse 12. If you want to turn back there, you you may. That we have received him and that we've become his children, not being born of the flesh, uh, not being born of blood or the will of, uh, of, of anybody, not even our own will, but of God's will alone. Uh, In the words of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, section 1, it says of the Lord Jesus that God from all eternity gave a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. In Jesus' ministry, uh, oftentimes he appeals to the doctrine of election, uh, mostly when he's faced with some form of disbelief. So parallel passages, Luke chapter 8, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter uh, 13, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you teach in parables? This is his answer. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And this is precisely what's going on with the crowd here in John chapter 6. They certainly see him. He's certainly right there, perceivable by human eyes, but not here with the eyes of faith. To them, uh, he's just another miracle worker. So the way the doctrine of election is uh, treated here, it's to be for the Christian the doctrine of the Christian's comfort. It's to be the doctrine of absolute comfort for the child of God. Just about every single time that the doctrine of election is ever ever mentioned in the New Testament, it's always in the context of comforting the believer, uh, reminding them of the redemption that's bought for them, and to encourage them to live a holy life because of it. It never induces the reader to ever ask the question about free will, or to ever make the reader wonder, am I of God's elect or anything like, like that? The doctrine of election is given by the Lord Jesus here, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, uh, even John in the book of Revelation is always the doctrine of absolute comfort. It's the doctrine of God's intentness towards his people. It says that God has paid so much attention to us that he's chosen us before the foundation of the world to be his own and to come to Christ. And to these words were given yet another layer of comfort that the elect are the Father's peculiar gift to the Son. You could look at verse 37. This is why the verse in verse 37 says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. So a little while ago, we saw that in order for you to truly come to Jesus, you must believe in Jesus. So now we understand that in order to believe in Jesus, we must be given to him 
by the Father as his peculiar gift. And so the believer has this great promise attached to it that whoever comes to Jesus will never be cast out. Uh, that, that, that is, since it is the work of God that someone believes, and God is omnipotent, that is, he is able to do all of his holy will, and his holy will is that everyone and everything that is given to his son will come to him by faith, and that they would be preserved as his people to the very end. What does this mean? It means that the believer has nothing to fear, even though the accusations of the evil one be ever shouting so loudly, the believer has the promise of never being cast out. Uh, in the original language, it's a double negative. Uh, in, in Greek, it doesn't work the same as in English, where not plus not equals yes or something like that. Uh, literally in the Greek, I think the King James Version is, uh, is, is rounding uh, the corner to being correct. Literally, it says that they will not be cast out, never. It's, it's almost like, um, I usually uh, describe it this way. Imagine you have a steel door that you nail shut. That's the first knot. And then the deadbolt, the, uh, the big lock, and then the welding that someone does on the inside and the out is the second knot. <laughs> so the believer will never, never, ever be cast out, never. Ever. The believer has the promise of never being thrown out. In other words, the believer always has a standing invite to the throne room of God. We never have to wait until he gives the thumbs up. We never have to wait until King Xerxes uh, raises the scepter for us. We always have it because of the work of God in Christ. Moreover, Jesus gives us yet another glimpse into how solid is the entirety of his work, verse 38, when he says, uh, for, which means, this, he's about to explain why all this is the case. For I have come down from heaven, like the man in the wilderness, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Which means that this is all the Father's will. This is all the Father's will in the, in the first place. It's another way of saying that Jesus isn't going behind the Father's back in order to win your redemption. It's the Father's plan. It's not, he's not going behind the Father's back. He's not pulling a fast one on his Father to do the work of redemption. He's working in accordance with his Father's will to bring us to faith in Christ. And although he's not mentioned here, we know that this is by the activity of the Holy Spirit. So the believer will never be cast out, which is to say that the believer always has a standing with God. Meanwhile, the crowd. We know that the believer will never be cast out but what about the crowd? What do they do? Well, we know that by verse 66, they turn back and no longer follow him. In other words, they cast themselves out. They cast themselves out, proving exactly what Jesus said above, that they were not working for the food that endures to eternal life. They show that whatever belongs to the, to the believer, the crowd wants very little of it. And so while they cast themselves out, the believer will never be cast out. And this brings us to the third promise in this section, that the believer will be raised up. The believer will be raised up. Now, when we look at verses 39 and 40, we see that they form a single message that looks somewhat poetic. Uh, if, we're, if this were the Psalms, uh, I would say to you that this is what's called a synonymous parallelism, 
where one line would follow another line that would essentially say the same thing. Why? To emphasize its basic message, what's being communicated. And this is precisely what Jesus is doing here by saying the same thing twice. He wants to give emphasis that the promises of God to the believer will be realized, death notwithstanding. Death notwithstanding, even extending beyond the believer's death itself. And there's certainly a lot in verses 39 through 40 uh, for sure, but the first thing I'd like to impress upon you is the harmony that exists between the Father and the Son. The harmony that exists between the Father and the Son. We've looked at it just briefly a moment ago, uh, but it really deserves a, a double take for many reasons, not the least of which is so that we can know how the persons of the Trinity function in redemption, uh, so that we can be in awe of the saving acts of God in Christ. But he says in the beginning of both verses, I'm kind of splicing them together, uh, that this is the will of the one who sent me, or the will of my Father, that I lose nothing of all that he has given me, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, I want you to see the harmony that's there between the persons of the Godhead. Uh, the Father wills that the Son would go and win a very particular people to himself that the Father has chosen. And so the Son, he goes, he, he's, he's born, we celebrate in this uh, season right now of the year, we celebrate his, his birth, he lives his, his entire life in their place, he finally, he spills his blood to achieve his Father's will and he raises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, he completes the will of his Father and then the Holy Spirit is sent um, from the, the, the Son and the Father to apply the work of the Son in total those whom, to those whom the people, the Father, has chosen. And what ends up happening is that the Spirit is glorified in the Son, and the Son is glorified in the Father, and the Father is glorified in both the Spirit and the, and the Son. I usually refer to this as what's called the Trinitarian Conspiracy. The Trinitarian Conspiracy. The three persons of the Godhead, brothers and sisters, are conspiring for you. They're acting in the background, orchestrating all the events necessary so that you would have eternal life. The Trinitarian conspiracy. And if you're in Christ, you have this eternal life right now. You have this life right now, and it will be yours in heaven. And according to Jesus, it will be fully realized when you will be raised up on the last day. Uh, you haven't earned any of this. Uh, you haven't worked for it. Uh, you haven't done anything to deserve it. You haven't stayed away from anything to deserve it. And you ultimately don't even have it in you to keep yourself in it. Uh, it's all the work of the triune God from start to finish. Each of the persons of the Godhead having their particular work, having their particular role, all redounding to the honor and praise of his glory. All this is bound up in the promise that the believer will be raised. So we see the harmony of the persons of the Godhead here. Secondly, I'd like us to appreciate the security of the believer. The security of the believer. Uh, and of course, anything that's built upon the will of the triune God is secure. And here the Lord Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, or that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, 
and I will raise him on the last day. Don't let the word should throw you, okay? Uh, The word should communicates intention. And if the intention is on the part of God to give you eternal life, then he's going to see to it that those intentions are met. Uh, that, that, I mean, after all, Jesus did say in verse 37 a moment ago when we saw uh, that, uh, that those who come to me will never be cast out, right? That in, in the original language, uh, there's a lot of rules uh, there. You can ask me later on what the Hena Clause plus, um, uh, plus future plus subjunctive means for the meaning of this, uh, this phrase. All to tell you that, this, that the believer is secure here. So don't let the word should throw you. There isn't a hint of the idea that someone could, could possibly uh, be lost in the realm of possibility here. Jesus doesn't say that this is a promise uh, that's kind of one size fits most, you know, going on. Uh, he, he says this promise without really specifying his terms. He doesn't flinch, in other words, when, when giving this promise, when holding this promise out to the crowd. And that's how we know that the believer is secure in Christ we can say that he receives an an absolute promise, uh, one that applies everywhere. If it were were otherwise, this passage wouldn't make sense at all. If if it were otherwise, if this promise only applied to certain select, probably the best of us, uh, there should be an inspired footnote there that says, does not apply to fill in the blank. We don't see that, which means that it's an absolute promise. The believer's promise is that they will be raised up on the last day. So how does this relate to the crowd? Getting back to the crowd. How does this relate to the crowd here? How does this make the whole chapter make sense? Well, it makes the whole chapter make sense because the crowd always came up short. Uh, They were looking for Jesus, and they find him, and eventually they come to him. And the whole time, they were looking for Jesus to wow them. Just multiply more bread for us, and we'll believe you. So Jesus says to them, no, 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 no. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am what the bread pointed to. What I have to offer is vastly superior to the bread that you just got yesterday. It's vastly superior to one meal's worth of bread. But that's what you're looking for. And you may have moved closer to me. The crowd may have moved closer to Jesus, but they have not come to him. And Jesus spells that out in no uncertain terms here. And by the way, if they would have come to Jesus the way that we should come to Jesus, it would look way different. It would look as, as, as though it were a gift granted to them by his Father. It would have looked like true saving faith. And anyone who has this will have life unending given to them now, and it will be theirs on the last day. And from here on out, we see that the whole dialogue is built upon this very thing. And we'll stop right here tonight. We've seen tonight that Jesus sustains us in how we need to be sustained, not merely in how we want to be sustained. And I'll close with a few applications for us this evening. Firstly, brothers and sisters, find in Christ our sustenance and receive him by faith. Find in Christ our sustenance and receive him by faith. He says to the crowd, I am the bread of life, which could also be translated to the bread for life or the bread that gives life. He says, whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me 
shall never thirst. In other words, if we're looking to something else outside the ministry of Christ to us to find what we need to sustain us in that, then we're not looking in the right place. We need to elevate our thinking. He says this even against the backdrop of the very miracle that he did on the day before. Essentially, he's saying to, to them, guys, don't look even to the miracles that I do myself. Look to me. This is what the miracles point to. He says, point, they, they point to me, myself. I am the bread of life. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be people who look to Christ by faith, not just in his benefits, not just for what he offers, and we receive in him all that is essential to come to God. So find in Christ our sustenance and receive him by faith. Uh, secondly, brothers and sisters, act like you belong to Jesus. Act like you belong to Jesus. Uh, salvation or belonging to Jesus in our passage is mostly portrayed as a gift from the Father to the Son. Verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. The people of God are a gift. The people of God are a gift from the Father to the Son, which means in the intent of this passage, if salvation could be taken away, it would not primarily be to our loss, it would be to the loss of Jesus Christ primarily. It is a gift that the Father gives to his Son and the son says that he will never lose anything. This means that you, if, you, if you're a Christian, you are a gift from the Father, and you now belong to Jesus. And if you belong to him, then it's not appropriate to do whatever it is that you want to do. He lays claim on you, and you belong to him. This means that the entirety, the whole of the Christian life is an acting out of you being a gift from the Father to the Son. So what he says to us, we believe. Uh, what he says for us to think, we think. Uh, what he says for us to do, we do. What he says for us to not do, we abstain from. What, what he says, what's the words of the hymn? I'm thinking off the, off the fly. Uh, where he says, we will go. This is what it's like to act out uh, that we belong to, to Christ in God. Where you and he disagree, you are to defer to him, in other words, because you belong to him. So act like you belong to Jesus. And thirdly, let the anticipation of the last day motivate you to confidence in this day. Let the anticipation of the last day motivate you to confidence in this day. When you compare it to the other Gospels, there's not many times where the Gospel of John uh, speaks as clearly about the end times as a future event as it does here. But whenever it does, it speaks with a very similar tenor. And two words in our passage can really kind of boil down and render what the end times is going to look to Jesus in our passage. Raised up. Those are the two words that Jesus uses in our passage to summarize the end times, raised up. Verse 39, I should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, I will raise him up on the last day. Literally, the, the word uh, to raise up means to stand again. And without getting into the thick of the major end times positions, the bottom line is that your end ought to color your present. Your end ought to color your present. And Jesus promises that it will end with us being raised up in glory. And this should fill us with confidence that 
our best days are ahead of us. So we look forward to a time when we can say with saint of the Old Testament, Job, says, after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom my eyes shall behold and not another. And it really fills us with confidence knowing that the Christian has always been in the mind of God from election all the way to resurrection. This is the case for you, brothers and sisters, and it will be the case for you on the last day. So let the anticipation of the last day color and move you to confidence in this day. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we 